This is Dr. Judd Burton of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, and you're listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. Its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to your show because it's exactly right. There's the nuggets of gold in his word. You guys always sign the show. You, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God's gonna be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't it, is it this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. Nephrology Roundtable. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long distance pals? We're back. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yeah. We got a treat for you today. Yeah. Well, being uh, we, re- we recorded two episodes today, uh, being made fun of uh, your hair, and we threatened him with a bear, and then he left. <laughs> and then he left. <laughs> uh, but uh, we ain't going to waste any time today. I'm excited for this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we talked about before the show, this is somebody that me and you both have uh, lived vicariously through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I'm excited about it. Oh, yeah. So go ahead and open up in prayer, and we'll get started. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for the blessings that we have, uh, for all the gifts you continue to give. Thank you for letting us have your word and, and, and be able to dive into it. Help us find truth through everything we do and continue to help us reach that one person that needs to hear you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the guest that we have with you today uh, has got a a very cool nickname. They call him the Maverick. The Maverick. So, so Maverick, uh, introduce yourself and let our <laughs> listeners know who you are. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the program with you. Uh, yeah, uh, my nickname is Maverick. Uh, some people call me the Maverick Archaeologist. You know, I'm just a guy that goes into the field, and uh, I uh, I investigate, excavate, 
and uh, I just love it. I love getting getting dirty and and uh, getting in the dirt and uncovering the past. So, so you like digging too? I do, but it it, it kind of depends on what kind of digging I'm doing now these days. Uh, but it yes, it's it's a lot of fun to you know uh, uncover uncover the ancient ruins, ancient past, the beauty of archaeology. It's it's a gift under the sands of time waiting to be revealed. So before we get too far in here, this is Aaron Judkins, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, and uh, what I love, and I want to just start out with this just a little bit before we get any further, is you're a biblical archaeologist, and I find that just awesome because it's something that and it's what it's one of those things that I always say is that you know if I could go anywhere in the world you know everybody says oh I'd love to go to Hawaii I'd love to go to the Maldives I'd love to go to you know the no I'd love to go to Israel I'd love to go to Egypt I want to see things that I can see in the Bible I can put my hands on I can see the proof and you get to do those things in the field not only in that regard but you also and we'll get into it in a little bit but I just absolutely love uh, the Glen Rose, Texas, uh, the Paluxy River, uh, Turnage tra- uh, the Turnage uh, Trail, and uh, I think you even have one named after yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Of those uh, of the the dinosaur tracks and things that you found. I mean, there's so many cool things that you've been able to be a part of being a biblical archaeologist. And let us know kind of how you got into that. Well, um, you know, it, this started uh, when I moved to Glen Rose, Texas. And I, uh, just being involved in, you know, a student of history and wanting to learn more. I, I learn, I try to learn, you know, about where I'm at. So I want to know about the history of that particular place. And, and, uh, so uh, we had, uh, we had made a trip the year before, not realizing I was going to be moving there the following year, but it worked out that we did. And so I had visited uh, a local museum in Glen Rose called the Creation Evidence Museum. And that uh, museum at the time was in a, a single wide uh, trailer house that was converted to a museum. And we had gone to see the dinosaur tracks at the uh, state park. And we passed right by the museum. It said Creation Evidence Museum. Well, I had never heard of anything like that. So we pulled in uh, to that museum. And Dr. Ball, Carl Ball, the founder and director of the Creation Evidence Museum, was it was on a Saturday because he was there at the museum giving a lecture. And I, I had just never heard of anything like this. And so it turns out that when we moved to the local area, I just went back. And they couldn't get rid of me, so I, I, uh, I basically said, "Hey, I, you know, I'd like to volunteer my time, uh, be involved with this ministry." And from that point on, I, I really uh, began to get answers for the first time that even as a Christian, I wasn't aware of. Like, what do you do with the dinosaurs? You know, when you're, you know, when you're young, you, t- you know, they they teach you that dinosaurs existed millions of years ago. And according to the theory of evolution, if you want to, you know, get into that, there's, you know, 65 million years of time separating man and dinosaur. Well, this all blew my mind. And I, I just had no, um, no idea that 
there was actual evidence that backed up our faith, what we believed in, in, in the realm of science and, and the empirical evidence was there. And so for the first time, really, I got answers to a lot of the questions. I just didn't, I was never taught. Uh, and uh, death, that's because a lot of the, a lot of these subjects aren't taught in church because they don't, they don't really know, you know, they don't get into the Genesis six, uh, you know, accounts of, of the fallen angels and, and the, and the giants and the Nephilim uh, dinosaurs. And so all this, I just, I began to soak all this up. And, and um, so over the course of the next decade, I just was a student in the Bible and in creation specifically. And I realized that there is solid evidence in what I call all the ologies and all the fields of science that backed up our faith. And the Bible had uh, basically laid this out. Now we know the Bible um, doesn't get into detail about the, uh, you know, the specifics, but it gives us a general concept of what happened in the past. And so uh, when we look at the re remaining evidence of this catastrophe that happened, we see that the Bible was very clear about, about um, a global de you know deluge, and so this this all started begin to you know fall into place for me answering questions about the dinosaurs and fossils, the fossil record, the geological column, and um, so that's really how I got into that. And then I was invited to go on a dinosaur dig, uh, and there were some folks from NASA was going to be attending this dig in a uh, uh, not in a um, in a formal sense, but they were uh, part of the group on the team that year, and then, um, and then a couple of years, I I started attending these these excavations, also in Glenrose. They would have an annual, or uh, uh, back in those days, we were I think doing twice a year, but we would have these excavations out there along the Paluxy, excavating for new dinosaur tracks. And then in 2004, I got invited to go to Israel, where we were the first team to excavate the pool of Siloam. And this is the, the pool where Jesus healed the blind man in the ancient city of David in what's called Ir David. And so all this really, um, over the course of uh, those early years, I just was an absolute student of, of learning uh, anywhere from the biblical creation to biblical archaeology. Isn't it just amazing to think you were right there where Jesus was? Like you were there potentially standing in the same spot where his feet were. And that just, that blows me away. Well, you know, to, to be invited to go on that particular dig in 2004, um, that was not an actual archaeological site. It, they were digging for a sewer line and um, uh, they, they found these huge foundation stones. And so that project, was stopped until they can uh, investigate further. And some of the um, Israeli archaeologists, uh, Ronnie Reich, and um, uh, there's another one. I'll think of his name here in a minute. Um, but uh, uh, both of these archaeologists had invited our team over, and so they waited till we got there, and then we all excavated uh, these huge limestone steps. And it turns out that this is the Pool of Siloam. 
Salon where Jesus healed a blind man. And, uh, and you, you can actually go in, in, into this area today and see where these steps lead. It leads down into where the pool uh, used to be. And it's huge. It's a, it's a, it's, it's not just like a little thing that we would think of. It, it was a huge area. Uh, and, uh, and then these steps actually led up, uh, to the temple. So you would go down into the pool of Salome, you change garments and you go down in that pool and then you would, you know, uh, you know, change garments. And then you would, you would walk up and proceed up to the temple, uh, through the old city, David. And so, um, to be a part of that was absolutely amazing. And there was a lot more work that they did over the following years. Uh, Ellis Shukron was the, was the other archeologist. And, uh, so it, I, I've been there back to that site several times since then. And, um, it's, it's really amazing to be able to be a part of, you know, an excavation that historic. So this is back in uh, the end of 2016, the early part of 2017, January. Um, it it takes a lot to get permission to have an excavation in Israel. Usually, the average waiting time is five years to get a permit. Even if you, you know, you don't even know if you're going to get granted this permit, you have to have, you know, an an on-site Israeli archaeologist. There's a lot of things that have to happen to make that possible. Uh, but um, it turns out that, you know, after 60 years of no excavations in Qumran, this is an area near the Dead Sea, uh, what the Bible calls the wilderness, where John the Baptist hung out. This is an area that is very dry. There's, there's, really, uh, there's really no trees uh, or natural water source there. It, it's, it's a very um, difficult area to to live in because of just there's there's really no it's all rock you know there's a lot of rock and a lot of hill but very little trees very little shade and uh and, and there's really no grass and so uh this is an area that the bible says that john the john the baptist had gone into the wilderness and so this was this particular area in qumran this is where they found the dead sea scrolls initially in these caves uh what they call the northern Engedi. And uh, in 19, I think 47, uh, they, uh, two Bedouin shepherds, uh, young uh, boys, uh, had um, had actually was was going through there was with a herd, and they lost one of the one of the goats, and so he thought it was kind of up in a crevice, up in a hole, and and so he took a rock and kind of threw it in there to thinking he could spook it out, and he heard the sound of cracking pottery. And so he climbed up in there, and what he discovered was uh, these jars uh, with lids on them, about uh, their pottery jars, about knee-high. And he took the lids off, and in these jars were scrolls. They didn't really understand the nature 
or the significance or the value of these scrolls. And so they, they took the scrolls out and they, you know, a pot's valuable to them. So they took the pot. They did take some of the scrolls and, and they hung it up on their tent poles. And this is an area that this is, you know, caves one through 11, uh, where, you know, the Dead Sea Scroll Corpus was found, mainly out of cave four, but uh, the Temple Scroll, the Copper Scroll, all these were found in this area, in this group of caves labeled one through 11. Well, in January 2017, since Roland DeVoe was there excavating, uh, there's been no other further excavations. There's hundreds of caves in the, in this part of the northern En Gedi. And, um, and so we got permission under a project called Operation Squirrel that allowed us to excavate a specific cave for a specific time. This happened to be surveyed as Cave 53, which is uh, near Cave 4 across the Wadi. And so we were able to, to go into this particular cave. And so it, it took, you know, it, it's very laborious work. Uh, there was really no experience excavating these caves because no excavations had been done for 60 years in this area. There was one cave that was, I think, in the southern En Gedi that's not related to the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, but they were in an excavation in one of the southern caves. The men uh, that, I think uh, uh, there was probably some some Bedouin, some Israeli that were, that were excavating, that, that were on the team, and they were very concerned about the stability of the cave and they refused to go in and the the archaeologist who was in charge of that dig and I'm I'm sorry I can't remember his name he went into that cave to show them hey it's okay you know there's nothing going to happen and that cave collapsed and collapsed in on him and it killed him and and uh so so this was this is new territory for for all of us to be able to go into a cave and it's it's dangerous work uh, so this this particular cave uh, ended up, you know, after weeks of work digging out this cave, we realized there was an artificial tunnel cut to the back of this cave. There was an artificial rock column in the center as you go, actually, as, upon the entrance of the cave that was man-made. And that was more of a supporting kind of rock column to support the entrance. And then they had cut an artificial tunnel. Um, in the back, and then it was just wide enough for one person to get in there and 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 to turn around and get back out. And so it's a very tight area to to, and it's completely dark in there. And so, you know, you imagine these guys doing this with no, you know, flashlights or anything. They're they're doing all this work by oil oil lamp. But uh, they carved out little niches in the side of the tunnel and they hid uh, these pottery jars which contained. We think Dead Sea Scrolls at the time. We found remnants of three jars. And then the left part of the cave, there was a rune that uh, was in existence at that time. And that, that left side of the cave, that room had collapsed all the way down to the, to the floor. We, we didn't realize it was a room. And uh, that's where one of the small, smaller scrolls was found. Um, actually, by one of, one of the archaeologists on the team. Now, this particular scroll was small. It did not have writing on it, but it was the first uh, scroll roll up inside of a scroll jar that was found in archaeology, all the other caves, one through 11. Well, he only got to four of them. Uh, the other six were raided by the Bedouins, and so there was no documentation of the scrolls 
that can be done in time inside the scroll jar. So this was the first cave since that time that, that was actually done. Now it was not the large scroll, you know, as I said, it was a smaller scroll. And then we found a second one that was uh, papyrus. Um, and it was kind of folded up and in an accordion shape. And to our knowledge, there, there was no writing on that either. But, but uh, this cave certainly had remnants of all the material culture that you would expect in a Dead Sea Scroll cave. The, the first 11 caves showed that there was um, you know, thousands and thousands of fragments. Some uh, books completely intact. Uh, the Scroll of Isaiah was completely intact. They call it the Great Scroll of Isaiah. Uh, completely intact. Um, Genesis, Exodus, multiple copies of Psalms, uh, etc. So, uh, and then some of those scrolls were non-biblical, uh, have, having you know to do with the community rule of we think the Essenes who lived there and wrote the scrolls. And so there, there was a lot that was found in that area, but this this particular cave. Uh, made international news. It it was uh, such a big thing that you know they called in the Dead Sea Cave expert and the Dead Sea Scroll experts, and they all came, and a lot more people started to show up uh, to the site. And uh, so, and as you know, it's it's you know pretty sensitive in that part of the world. And um, so there was there was a a lot of things happening, but um, particular cave. Um, is going to go into the history books and renamed uh, Q12, which is Cave 12. Um, so, so I was really blessed and honored to be a part of that with uh, Dr. Randall Price and Liberty University in conjunction with uh, Hebrew University. And, and you documented these pretty well uh, on your website. You have uh, a book with uh, all your journal entries, and there's even a, a documentary. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I have uh, so several journals that? that I made public. Uh, these are my field notes, essentially, and uh, kind of what what the behind the scenes every day I would journal. Uh, this is, um, you know, something that most archaeologists, um, you know, will journal uh, what they did for the day, what they found, where they found it, etc. Uh, a lot of that uh, that I put in the journal is just my personal notes. Uh, and so most of the things that had relation to behind the scenes, you know, look into the into the day-to-day activities. And then then we basically made a 90-minute film with a friend of mine who I couldn't even get on the site. It was so secured. But uh, the very last day he met me and then we did some I did actually get some filming from the site on the last day and interviewed a couple of people like Dr. Randall Price and um, some other key people there. Uh, and then we take you on a journey called Qumran to Petra. Yeah, that and, was awesome. Uh, yeah, you shared that on our community page. Yeah, just a couple of guys, you know, taking you on these ancient sites. We go to Masada and then over into Jordan to Petra and take you all through there. So I do have, I do want to jump ship to a, a different, uh, no pun intended, to a different subject, but, um, you have been involved in an expedition kind of looking for Noah's Ark. And I find that fascinating. Um, big fan of that. I've, you know, we've seen a lot of different theories and different ideas from different people. I've watched documentaries on this, you know, obviously read the biblical account. Um, 
you know, we've looked at the Ron Wyatt's um, perspective and we've heard from other people that know it's in other areas. Uh, but I'd kind of like to hear a little bit about your experience looking for Noah's Ark. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, in relation to to Noah's Ark, uh, there's there's actually multiple candidates for this site. Um, kind of depends on who you're talking to at the time, because everyone's, you know, in, involved in this research. You know, there, there's other people um, in this field, uh, such as Ron Wyatt was back in the '80s and '90s uh, before he passed away. Uh, that uh, he was convinced that the Ark was located at what they call the Derupinar site. This is a site about 30 miles away from Mount Ararat, which is also called Greater Ararat, uh, across the valley there about 30 miles. And um, uh, I went to that particular site um, before I actually made the climb up to up Mount Ararat on the eastern plateau, which was uh, that was uh, actually featured in a, in a theatrical documentary called Finding Noah. Uh, and, and that that was a whole thing in itself. But um, we actually went to the Derupinar site first. There's many archaeologists and geologists who've gone to survey this particular site. And there's people uh, such as Ron Wyatt and others uh, currently that uh, that are convinced that this is a particular site. This Derupinar site is uh, the actual site of Noah's Ark. Now, I don't happen to hold to that position. Uh, I think Noah's Ark is probably on Greater Ararat down in the Ahura Gorge area. There's reasons why I think that, but um, I don't think it's, just in my personal opinion, I don't think it's at the Derupinar site. I'm open-minded on all this stuff. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not dogmatic in, in any of this. So, you know, I have a friend uh, there now named Andrew, and he's he's been doing a lot of work at this particular site at Derupinar. Uh, he's been very, you know, diligent about um moving that forward and working with the authorities there the local authorities and uh, he's fully convinced that that site is uh the remnants or the foundation of noah's ark uh, so there's other candidates you know uh well, around with that our site i had a question for you uh, and i'm sure it's on our listeners minds too especially if they've looked into this and watched you know ron, ron wyatt's documentaries and kind of kept up with it uh they went down there and you know and examined everything and of course i mean if you've seen this sign i mean it it's in the shape of a big boat and then you see right. the the mudslide coming down off the mountain and he theorized that it landed on the mountain and mudslides happened and pushed it down right to where it was at and um they did uh, ground penetrating radar which granted back then it was fairly new equipment and they got all these images you know that you can find on the internet i mean it looks like it's a, a three-tiered boat and pillars and beams and all this stuff uh so uh, are you of the opinion that this was just uh new technology and they just you know didn't know how to to read the uh, equipment correctly and was misled or or just some kind well, of like uh, anomaly of the machine or no i i, I don't think they misread it i i think they interpreted it uh wrong okay. uh, that that you know that the the evidence you know with with that technology at the time is you know based on uh you know a geologist survey uh, that that can interpret that data, and um, I think probably what they were seeing was 
um, that was on those uh, radar scans, I, I think they were, especially Ron, I think he was, it's obvious, he was fully convinced that this was um, an outline of, of a boat-shaped object, presumably uh, the timbers that formed the original part of the structure, including the hull. So I, I don't think it was a deliberate attempt um, to, to mis misread the data. I think it was just, I think they, um, they just interpreted the data wrong that they had. And this, this is, you know, this happens um, when you're, when you're trying to search this thing out. I mean, it's normally the answer is not immediate. And so there's, there's a lot of work that has to go into this and, and data is part of that. Uh, but the interpretation of the data too is, is essential. And, um, I, I think probably that, um, what they were seeing instead of, you know, these walls, there's been many, uh, people, independent geologists, archeologists have, have gone to the site since the eighties and over the course of, of the decades following. And, um, um, they, they have studied this at length and, um, you know, that, you know, they, they've come away, basically that they've come away from the site initially skeptical or, uh, initially convinced that the original data, these surveys were, were showing a, an actual hull, you know, some kind of, a you know, a boat shaped structure. But in reality, these walls are not wooden walls. They are simply hardened mud. It's a geological formation. It doesn't contain any, you know, remnants of a hull of a ship that was built there or, or landed there. And so there's, there's been a lot of, a lot of study on this. And one thing I you think know, people can take a lot of comfort in too, is it's easy for people to say, well, you know, they're non-believers. They don't, of course, they don't want it to be real. You, you know, you are a, a Bible-believing man, and I'm sure there's nobody in the world that would want it to be real more than you. So it's not like you're just trying to dismiss it. Right, yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I this mean, was real, that, you would you'd be the first one to say it. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, I, I, and others before, before me would have, too. Uh, Dr. John Morris is one of those geologists from... ICR who went there in the, in the 80s and he actually studied this site uh, with you know uh, a critical mind uh, as a geologist and there's been others too you know simply putting putting all that together I, I'm I'm not personally convinced you know the burden proof really rests with those who claim that you know that these are the ship's ribs you would think that you know samples would have been sent off of the material for scientific tests but Really, there's not been any indication that this was, you know, sampled uh, for, you know, for wood. Now, there's claims that there's been fossilized wood found in that area, and there there are fragments of fossilized wood, but but um, and there's some rather large pieces as as big as your leg. The simple answer is this is a this is just a natural geological mud flow formation, and it is ironic. I, I think it's in a, this kind of a diamond shaped pattern roughly uh, the length of what we would expect the Noah's Ark to be. Um, I just don't think there's enough evidence at the time to, to support it. You know, soil samples and, and, you know, a lot of other things. But as I said, you know, that's, that's my current position on it. And there's others who are actually, you know, continuing 
you know, with the work on that site, that one of the things I find interesting is that there's not been any formal excavation done at the Drupinor site. There's been scans and surveys. And, yeah, that's what I've always wondered. You know, but, find out, yeah, so, dig in there. Right. So, and, and that would completely answer the question for us if there was a proper archaeological excavation of the site, but there's not been. And, and, uh, I, I don't know that. It's kind of like the tourist attraction they get from it. It's like the country, you know, understandably so would be afraid that it would be proven not because they get a lot of tourism over that. Don't they? They got a little, uh, even visitor center close by. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it's not a real big center there. Uh, but, uh, from when I was there back in 2013, uh, there was, you know, uh, some signage you can walk out to the side and there was just not a whole lot there. Now I think all that, you know, I think that's changed now. I think the visitor center is, uh, is progressed and they, they've done a lot more with regards to, um, you know, bringing people in and, and, you know, letting them see it. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't have gone, uh, to climb Mount Ararat, you know, yeah. Tell us about uh, that climb. I mean, I'm it, sure that was just, uh, very pleasant. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. You're it, planning it was, to it, do it again real soon, ain't you? It was so, yeah, it was, it was probably the most, one of the most, uh, challenging things I've ever done in my life. It, you know, uh, I, I don't climb mountains. I love to hike, but this, this is, this is beyond hiking. This is, uh, this is a very difficult climb, especially the last 3000 feet is, is, is very hard. And, um, so, uh, it, you know, I, I trained for months w- to climb, uh, this, this particular mountain and, uh, it, it, anyone who's seen the film finding no one, I think it's on available on Amazon prime for free. Um, I've got DVDs if people are interested in that, uh, that I can send out. Um, but, um, it, it, it clearly shows you the, how, <laughs> you know, how challenging it is to climb that, just to get yourself up there. We're not talking any of the equipment, the scientific equipment. I mean, this is a major push, uh, a major effort to scientifically try to answer the question, is there anything on the Eastern Plateau in greater era? And uh, it's extremely challenging. It was miserable. And the first three days I was up there, it was really miserable. We, we basically, as soon as I got up there, we basically was in whiteout conditions, uh, with winds, um, that were extremely, I don't even know how high they were, but the Kurds had put up an emergency, uh, well, they put up a supply tent, a small supply tent up there and, um, and uh, they had a tent. But when I got up there, I couldn't even put my own tent up. I basically had to throw everything out of the supply tent and and basically dive in the emergency tent uh, for the remainder of the night because it, uh, it, it, for the day and that it, it was it was pretty rough conditions up there and that's the way it was for about three days. It you know um, it, it's challenging to say the least. But uh, there was one particular day uh, the 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 weather calmed down and the sun came out and it was absolutely just beautiful. You could see completely, um, around it. It was, you can see into to Iran and, you know, if you were on the North 
west side of the mountain you could see into armenia and you know obviously you could you could you know see in the turkey it was just it was astounding because the clouds are below you and you know and but it was just this particular day was very clear and um um yeah it's it's it was amazing thing i I, i'm i'm very glad i didn't give up i that i continued you know to to finish out what i was you know the job that i was set out to do and that is to try to you know independently verify if some kind of superstructure was on the eastern plateau in greater era so a lot of a lot of effort uh as a team went into this and there's a lot of things that have to happen right to to make this happen what you won't see in the film is uh, uh, part of the film crew and part of our crew actually descended, um, you know, before the main crew did, and and uh, uh, there was a you know a, a time where a part of that crew was was taken by the PKK uh, at gunpoint. Um, there was, um, and you know the the remainder of us who were up on the summit was unaware of what was happening and. And, uh, so it, it all turned out okay. It, uh, but they, they were led around the side of the mountain several hours. They had their, their cell phones and their passports confiscated and they were questioned for hours. And there was a lot of other things that went along with it, but in the end they were released, but it's, um, it's a geopolitical, you know, sensitive area there and as in with most of that region. And so, uh, there's a lot of other dangers along with it. I, I know uh, one of my colleagues, um, John McIntosh, who's who's passed on now uh, a couple of years ago. I think he passed away, but he was an early ARC researcher that climbed with our uh, Apollo astronaut, Jim Irwin, when he was still alive. I think he was on Apollo 15. And um, uh, he, he made several climbs with Colonel Irwin that I— uh, now I didn't climb with him in 2013. He was already too old to climb at that point, but, um, I had visited with him many times and, you know, Colonel Irwin nearly died on one of his climbs on the mountain. But, um, that was true for, uh, uh, for Macintosh too. And, um, he, uh, he said they woke up with, uh, um, AK 47s pointed inside of his tent about 6 a.m. And they were all forced out of their tents at gunpoint. Uh, they uh, basically had their cameras and their 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 boots and their shoes all put into the pile, and they burned them. And they lined them up against the wall and uh, did several mock executions um, as if they were going to execute them. And they just said, "Well, this is it," you know. And uh, uh, so it's. It, you know, uh, Dr. John Morris, uh, he was climbing with a team of three and they were struck. Um, well, there was a, a, a bolt of lightning, um, or some kind of strong electric charge on one of the boulders that they were near, but, uh, they nearly died of this. It's either a static discharge or, or, or lightning strike. It hit a boulder just several feet from them and it blew them all back and unconscious. Uh, for several hours and so Rich yeah lots Rives of stories has a, a very similar story that uh he's the uh the curator of uh ron white's uh art museum 
and uh, he he shared a similar story. He he and some uh, other guys climbed that mountain and and were taken at gunpoint too. I mean, it's just uh, not only are you dealing with right. the the dangers of the, of the mountain and the weather itself. It's the 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 military, like you said, it's just a very sensitive region. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. It yeah. I you know I. I documented all this in my uh, journal called uh, um, the quest for Noah's Ark. And, um, you know, so that gives you kind of a behind the scenes journey of my, my climb and, and all the efforts, you know, that were made. Um, so there's lots of interesting things there, uh, you know, that's, that's available for people if, if they're interested to learn more about it, but uh, certainly, you know, this particular journey and, and others, um, you know, I've been, um, I think some, some major efforts to, you know, discover if there's, you know, is there anything there? And I think this is one of the, you know, one of the great mysteries of the past, you know, that, um, that still is unanswered. And I think when we have a solid answer, I think it'll be one that it'll be very clear. There won't be any more debate about it. Um, about where it is and what it is. I think when, when the timing is right and, and God reveals it, I think it'll be a very clear, uh, for everyone. And it'll be, you know, evidence of, you know, what happened in the past was true. And, the, and what, what the Bible says in Genesis about Noah's flood is true. And it'll serve as a, you know, another Testament, you know, frozen in time, if you will, that, I think that will will serve another testimony that you know that once world that was the antediluvian world, the antediluvian world that was destroyed by water. There's a, there's another a time where um where I think as in the Bible says in in Revelation that there's going to be another destruction coming to this earth, and um you know and it, I think this will serve as another testament. Whenever this thing is is found, it's going to be really. I I think um, it'll usher in the 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 last days like we've never seen. Oh, yeah, um, I mean, you can't. I mean, if if you get proof of the ark, I mean, if that doesn't sway any non-believers, then at that point there there's no saving them. But but you talked about dra- dragging up all that equipment and. Part of that was was, was drills because I mean it's just a you know hundreds of feet deep solid sheet of ice. So, I mean if the ark yeah. is there, like you had mentioned, it, it is just frozen in time. But Jen's drilled down, you know, several hundred feet, and Jen's actually made a discovery of uh, what you thought was a, a piece of wood, and it was really uh, had like sappy material, for lack of a better term all over it and thought that you know you you may have had a, a a piece of the boat and the the sappy material you know could could have been the pitch that they were talking about you know in the bible uh but that that stuff that you found you actually had sent that off to get tested when we had Derek gilbert on the show he had mentioned it and said that uh he didn't uh know what the results were for your testing uh do you care to, to go into that? Uh, was there any uh, yeah. fruit from that? Yeah, it was my, my colleague, Bruce Hall. Uh, if you've seen the film finding Noah, he's really the one that, that, you know, kind of headed that up and, 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 uh, and, uh, made sure that that sample 
got taken to a lab where we could do a proper study on it. And I think that sample came back as organic material. Um, uh, Bruce did take a little bit of a sample. You'll see in the film where he, he does a, um, a test on it with heat to see what happens. And this particular name of the test, I don't remember what, what, uh, soon to be Dr. Bruce Hall, uh, called it, but, um, um, but it was enough to warrant to, 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 to bag and tag it. And, uh, but it, it did show organic material. Uh, to my knowledge, there was, um, there was no wood, uh, grain found in it. Um, but, uh, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done on that particular mountain to rule it out completely. And unfortunately that involves an area that's almost impossible to get into. And that's the Hori Gorge. Uh, it is an extremely dangerous part of the mountain with cliffs that are thousands of foot drop off. It's some, well, uh, I've been told it's about as twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. It is extremely dangerous on that side and it's almost impossible to get to it from the top. You have to go from the bottom up and, I think that's a particular area where Dr. John Morris and his team were struck by lightning. I think that may have been in the late 80s or the early 90s. Uh, so it, it's it's a very hard place to get to. And uh, that's one area of the mountain that uh, I think they have it uh, in, in restricted access at times, uh, depending on what's happening happening geopolitically in the region. So there's just a, there's just so many factors, but I I would love to get back uh, one day to you know and perhaps if there was some solid empirical evidence, some hard evidence that that showed us, hey, this is where we need to go back to, then I would I would probably consider it at that point, but probably not to make another climb like that. Just to it's it's uh it's it's well, very difficult. Who can very blame you, honestly? But switching gears, your latest book. I made a like a little video review for it on our community page and on our uh, Dig Bible Podcast uh, Facebook page. That was an amazing book. You know, Guardians of Gobekli, as Judd Burton had said, it's the the paradigm that's changing the paradigm. This book was, I joked and said it might as well be about anti gravity because I couldn't put it down. Once I started, I couldn't stop, and I just literally like devoured this thing. Go into the writing of this book, uh, your experiences there, what, what stood out to you? And first of all, thank you. I love all the pictures, all the drawings, because somebody like me, you know, will probably never get to go and see sites like these. So I loved how it had all the pictures and the drawings. It felt like I was right there getting to see all these things. It was very well written. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, Guardians of Gobekli Tepe's new book that that just came out. Um, on the side of uh, Gobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey, and um, this this site is um, um, supposedly goes back to the Stone Age. It's one of the oldest um, uh, archaeological sites that's uh, ever been discovered. And uh, uh, so, I was challenged uh, about three three years ago. Uh, to look into Gobekli Tepe, it was it was going to be a very, you know, difficult subject to tackle, and and I just decided I you know I just didn't have time to look into the subject. And after a couple of times of declining, you know, uh, one of my 
uh, particular uh, followers had encouraged me to look into the site. And, and then I got to thinking about it a little bit more, and I thought, well, where does this where does this site fit in with the with the Bible? What's the evidence uh, for for this site? And so I, I basically uh, it was it began to be a challenge for myself to to look into this and see see what the evidence was showing. And so I wanted to give an answer to to Gobekli Tepe that hadn't been done before, and that is a a biblical answer to where uh, Gobekli Tepe fit into fit into the to the Old Testament. Um, and so my biblical archaeology mind um, began to wonder, well, where does this actually fit into the timeline of the Bible? Because these people were descendants of Adam, and, uh, and they were, you know, um, they came through history at some point, you know, through the Bible. How, how did that, you know, what does that look like? And so, um, you know, I, I began to research the site, and and uh, and that's when I decided there's there's a lot more here uh, that needs to be looked at. And as you said earlier, you know, Dr. Judd Burton, one of my colleagues, had had described it as a paradigm that's changing the paradigm because this is a site that completely turns uh, the evidence of the archaeological record upside down. The things that are being discovered at Gobekli Tepe is completely the opposite of what they've told us. Is how things, according to a cultural evolution, should have happened. The evidence is 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 revealing the very opposite at Gobekli Tepe. That um, you know, agriculture, you know, and then sedentary life and the community, and you know, and then religion came. Uh, Gobekli Tepe is showing us that religious ideology came first, and then agriculture, and then communities and in in cities. And 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 people coming together, um, not as a result of uh, agriculture, but a, as a result of religion. And so this this really gets into uh, this this site that um, uh, that was so mysterious and intriguing that um, that I I really wanted to get some answers about what Gobekli Tepe was, because after all, this is, this is a Stone Age people that can't, you know, they, they can't really, you know, form into these organized large communities and a division of labor. And yeah, they're big dummies know. that grunt and carry clubs. If we yeah, believe and, what and, science and, tells us. Right. And start fires. This is completely the opposite. We're seeing a, an organization of labor, a division of labor. We're seeing um, these megalithic stone structures that are built in an area that uh, I think is um, very close to where, um, well, it's, it's not too far from from Mount Ararat, as we talked about, uh, just you know, uh, several hundred miles from that particular site. I think it's very close to where the Garden of Eden probably was, um, and uh, this is in the area of the Fertile Crescent. I think this is where um, the birth of humanity sprang from, not and out of Africa theory. And so because of that, there's, there was so much in here um, that I just began to, over the next two and a half years, just through everything that I knew to, to throw at it, to answer a question, you know, who are the, you know, are the people at, at Gobekli Tepe? What were they doing there? Why were they there? And then I 
began to understand that there was, you know, something even greater going on at this site that was changing our perception of human origins. And Inns have even found uh, plaster at the site. Well, and that's what's, you know, one of the... That's mind-blowing. Yeah. It, it, see, <laughs> this is this is all little things that, that I began to discover. Um, you know, there's emerging information and data that's, that's coming forth. Uh, it, it, there's some that's so new, they just came out. They've, they've held on to it for five years. Um, and they're just now releasing it. And I, I got it in the book, uh, that, that it's brand new information that just came out. And so this is some of the, now it's not, you know, it's not an all inclusive report, but what it will do is it'll give you a solid understanding of, uh, this area called Gobekli Tepe and, and where does it fit into the, to the timeline of the old Testament and who are these people? And so, uh, yeah, there's plaster there. And that's one of the interesting uh, little discoveries I made was uh, there's a lot of a lot of things happening here that if these were supposedly Stone Age people uh, living so long ago that didn't have before the invention supposedly of writing and the will, how do they know uh, the concept of plaster and uh, what the effects of plaster did? It was... It was, it's quite amazing. So I, I began to put all these little pieces together. And then, you know, there was at one point in time, then I realized there's something that's, that's happening here. That I, I think that, that indicates a reason why they were there in, in a language that they were speaking through these stones. It's almost like it's antediluvian pre-flood knowledge. You know, it talks about the Upkalu sages that came and gave this wisdom. I mean, they obviously... They, they knew some things that they shouldn't have known. I, I watched uh, on Netflix that uh, Ancient Apocalypse with Graham. Right. And he was even talking about how the three structures and how the uh, like the entrances line up to, uh, uh, I think he said, the, the star Sirius. And he said, and like by looking at them, like you can tell which one was built first because Sirius was at this way. And then the other... Uh, enclosure was built, you know, later as an add-on, and its entrance was tilted just a little bit more because of how Sirius changes its uh, position in the sky throughout the years. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Is that uh, does that hold any weight? Well, I I think the stars. And... Yeah, I I think I think so. Um, I, I think there's a good chance that that there could be alignments with the enclosures at Gobekli Tepe with with astronomy. Um, I actually talk about this in one of the chapters of the book that I think it's, it's pointing to the Taurus constellation and the Orion constellation. Now Sirius is also called the dog star. And this, this is very close to those constellations. I, I think, um, I think it makes sense when, when you're looking at, um, you know, what these constellations mean, because these people were, you know, basically came together, you know, as a result of a, uh, a religious uh, ideology. So I, I think there's a very, very good chance that that it's uh, aligned or or at least associated with uh, these constellations. I I specifically talked about these constellations of Taurus and Orion. 
Well, going into that, it's a good segue. Uh, you see a lot of these, you know, T-shaped pillars that go back like, and especially like in the in the center. In the center, there there's uh, there's two in, inside of each enclosure, and they're significantly larger than the others. But if you don't pay close attention, you'll miss it. But it's like, in in your pictures and stuff inside the book, it shows clearly that uh, these are like depictions of people. They've got, they've got hands on them, uh, belts and uh, loincloths, uh, animals depicted on them, and even you know you talked about uh, all the bullvine imagery. Uh, what was going on there, in your opinion? It, it, you know, was it like veneration of dead ancestors with some star worship going on? Uh, did they live there? Was this just something that they would just show up to once a year? Uh, what, in your opinion, was was going on here? Yeah, so that was one of the major questions I was trying to answer. Uh, you know, up until recently, uh, the archaeologist at Gobekli Tepe said this was an area that uh, that there was no habitation at this site. Uh, now they're learning that there is uh, and there was habitation at this site. And this means that people lived at Gobekli Tepe. And not only that, they were buried at Gobekli Tepe, as we see in so many of the uh, other similar sites around that area in the region that they uh, especially the Natufian culture, but they buried their dead under the floors of their home. And um, they have discovered some burials now at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, I think at least four burials uh, in, in this, this information. This is all new information, and, and it is documented in the book. But uh, uh, So there's, there's new emerging evidence that people lived there. And this... Uh, the site is just so huge. It's, it covers a 22-acre area. And um, uh, so and initially we thought these people came and then they left. Now the evidence is showing that they actually lived at this site. It, it was inhabited. Um, and uh, probably, uh, you know, these, these enclosures and, and this, you know, these different areas were set aside for different purposes and different reasons, uh, perhaps. Some of the rectangular structures uh, that's adjacent to the enclosures were living quarters. Uh, then the round enclosures themselves were considered sacred space. Uh, as you said, there's two central anthropomorphic images that are 18 and a half foot tall. Some say up to 20 foot tall, uh, but they do are their faceless stone T columns. Uh, no face, but they have arms and hands wrapping around the front uh, with. Um, uh, wearing these these loincloths held up by a belt, and, it, and it's puzzling to see this in in, in imagery uh, with uh, these zoomorphic um, animals that that are depicted uh, on the stones at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, most of them um, show um, animals such as lions and foxes and serpents and scorpions and um, birds, vultures. Um, these, there's a, at bull imagery is, is, is also, um, uh, found at Gobekli Tepe. And we see that the, the people of the Neolithic are called the people of the bull because they did worship, uh, this ancient, 
animal called the the Auric, and it was a, a huge bull that took uh, several men to bring down. Uh, this, these were giant animals, and uh, and so uh, we see this this Auric imagery at Gobekli Tepe, and we see actually uh, this this imagery being worshipped around the region of Gobekli Tepe. So I think there's a tie between the Auric bull imagery uh, and the uh, religious implications that, that come after Gobekli Tepe with the worship of the moon god seen. Now, this comes later on, but I think there's a tie between uh, these deities, uh, perhaps one and the same, um, but uh, definitely we see the imagery of, of, uh, of a lunar deity and a bull deity uh, at Gobekli Tepe. And a lot of the, uh, the animals that you mentioned, to me, stand out you know, as, as constellations, you know, there was a, you know, the, the, the bird, uh, the, the scorpion, uh, the bull, uh, just all these, uh, depictions, you know, that, you know, that are in the sky. Yeah. Now, now other researchers, um, uh, have done a lot of work into, into this, this this zoomorphic imagery as being constellations, Andrew Collins being one of them. I reference Andrew Collins in the book. Um, I think he's a very good uh, researcher, uh, and uh, I, 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 matter of fact, I, I read uh, his book on on Gobekli Tepe. I, I reference it in the book. Um, he's he's done a lot. Of, there's others too that's that's done work in this area that. Uh, this zoomorphic imagery perhaps points to constellations or comet, uh, comet striking the Earth. I looked at it from a little bit different angle because that's already been done, and I think you know there's a good chance that that uh, that may be correct. Uh, we just don't know for sure. I'm open to the possibility of it um, that those images represent constellations because. Um, just like the ancient Egyptians and, and, and other cultures uh, look to the stars, even the Mayans. I, I, I talk about these cultures, other cultures in the book, because I wanted to give a wide, kind of a wide swath and give you a good foundation uh, to understanding Gobekli Tepe. And so I compare it with other ancient civilizations that had advanced knowledge. And one of these is, is astronomy. But, you know, if you look at the four brightest stars in the Zodiac, they're Regulus, Leo the lion is Antares uh, in the in the eagle or the serpent holder. It's from uh, formaldehyde in Aquarius, the man, and then Aldebaran, Aldebaran in Taurus, the bull. And so the zodiac or the Maseroth, as the Bible calls it, lays out these signs to match the four beasts, beginning from Virgo the virgin, ending with the sign of Leo the lion the tribe of Judah. And so when you when you look at all that, uh, especially the Taurus constellation, which, which is representative of the bull or the ox, uh, all these four stars are arranged three signs apart in the four corners of the heavens. And so when you, when you put that together, uh, you realize this is the face of a cherubim. You realize this is the face of a cherubim. And so, and so I walk you through all that because this gets into uh, the likeness of the cherub. And, you know, I won't, you know, get into all the details here, 
uh, because I, I do that in the book. But um, I, I think I think this is a very interesting concept of why they were at Gobekli Tepe. They were living there. Obviously, this is along the ancient plains of Haran, where the wild wheat and emmer barley grew, uh, and this is abundant, you know, game. These wild giant auroch bulls that lived there. Uh, gazelles. There's there's plenty of evidence that they were hunting, uh, and and they were. Um, uh, this is before agriculture, but they were, were at least harvesting these wild grains of the uh, of the wheat and barley, and they would bring it back. Uh, we we see grinding stones and tools, uh, thousands of these mortar grinding stones, uh, over three thousand of these sickle blades to to harvest the wheat to grind the wheat and the barley. There's evidence of big stone vats where they took the barley and uh, we think that they fermented it. Um, and, uh, you know, that turns into natural beer when you ferment barley. Um, and so um, there's, there's a lot of evidence of, of them living there. But um, uh, I think one of the reasons uh, that they built these enclosures with these central anthropomorphic features and all this was to simulate an underworld. I think they probably, now they're open to the sky now, but I think at that time they were roofed perhaps and enclosed, but it would simulate the underworld, just like the Mayans would, would go you know, underground and, and go into these cave systems and these water, you know, uh, these pools of water and these streams. They, it, it just it, To them, this was the underworld that they were in. And so I think that the people at Gobekli Tepe probably did something very similar to simulate the underworld in a religious uh, ritual context, um, you know, in a, in a way that they were worshiping uh, these deities, uh, perhaps paying homage to their dead ancestors and veneration. But there's evidence of libations at Gobekli Tepe. And I, I walk you through some of the enclosures that were excavated that, where they found. Um, stone plates, limestone plates, and stone round vessels, uh, even some with channel grooves uh, where blood can probably flow down. Um, and so I think these were these served as areas uh, for libation offerings. And you mentioned plaster earlier. We see evidence of plaster, and we know the areas that are similar to Gobekli Tepe uh, in the what they would consider sacred space for probably these ritual ceremonies, those floors were plastered with limestone, um, and they had two central anthropomorphic images, uh, which represented uh, people, specifically males, uh, in this case. And I, I think this is probably a representation of either their ancestors, which served as guardians to the gods where it brought these uh, guardians from the sky into the, like they were inviting them either up from the underworld or from the heavens above through a gate system. What's interesting is, is that um, I think um, these uh, are what they were considered artistic motifs on the side of these pillars and stone columns um, were not art at all. I think it is. There's a connection to the Luvian language, and uh, I discuss that in the book how I made that connection. Now there's been independent researchers that uh, that also have come out with this. One is um, 
I'll think of his name. In a minute. I just, I've lost his name for a second. I think this is Luvian language. And, and the Luvians um, wrote, especially in um, stone uh, monuments or stella monuments, they used a specific form of language. Uh, it's called Anatolian hieroglyphics, but more specifically, Luvian hieroglyphics. And uh, so if this is 12,000 years old before the invention of, of writing, then um, I, I'm, I'm wondering why there's representation of Luvian logograms on these stones. Um, because if they are Anatolian hieroglyphics, that comes much later in history. And so in the, in the back of the book, I, I, I put in a timeline so you can visually see. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about, about Dr. Burton. I originally, Dr. Burton and I were writing this book together and, and uh, for other reasons, Dr. Burton uh, needed to, to pause. Um, and so um, uh, I went ahead and published the book uh, with the content that I had, hopefully Dr. Burton and I will, will put our contact, uh, content together in a C single volume with some new information. And, and, um, but, um, you know, because, you know, of, of the, of the time that, you know, went on in, uh, early 2019, 2020, 2021 with COVID hitting, you know, hitting, hitting the world that I, I had a lot more time to, to research this out a little bit further. And so I developed this timeline, this graphic timeline, chronology timeline in the back of the book, so you can visually see uh, where I place Gobekli Tepe on the on the biblical timeline. But I have two timelines: one's according to the Masoretic text, and the bottom timeline is according to the Septuagint. Uh, and so I place those um, where I think it, it's about as close as you can get on either timeline. Um, but it's it's definitely a, a site that that I think over the course of time is going to reveal. A whole lot more information. Only five percent of the site's been excavated. Yeah, so I was about to say, so yeah, the beam scratched the surface. A long way to go. Yeah, what, 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 with what we do know now at the site, I think I've, I think I, I think I've got a fairly good, solid answer on what's happening at Gobekli Tepe, and it's not what the standard answer that has been given to us. That this is twelve thousand years old from a Stone Age people. There's something much more complex going on at Gobekli Tepe, um, and I think it has to do with the people uh, that, that came um, uh, perhaps after the flood. Now, this is where Dr. Judd Burton and I uh, diverge uh, a little bit. Um, Dr. Burton um, uh, has some ties uh, that, that go pre-flood, and I have ties that go after the flood, post-deluge. Uh, but certainly this site, um, has a has a central theme, and that is that they are worshiping a deity or multiple deities uh, at this site that I think served also as some kind of a spiritual gateway. Because when I talked about those logograms uh, on these stones, now they're not officially um, called logograms on the you know they're they don't recognize them as Luvian lo logograms. Yeah, you've made. I that think connection. that's what they are. I think that's. I think these are not simple artistic motifs. I think it's language, but specifically this Anatolian hieroglyphic Luvian. Uh, this particular form of hieroglyphics was only written in stone because writing in stone is, you know, 
is is something that is reserved perhaps for a sacred reason for a sacred context you just don't oh i agree it stands the test of time say we're gonna build a megalithic structure and we're gonna erect these multi-ton stones from a quarter of a mile away at a limestone quarry drag them to gobekli tepe erect these stones build enclosures around them and have all these things happening it has to be for a specific reason and a purpose that they all came together in a in in a in a in a commonality that that bound their their ideas together and i think that was through religion and these symbols i think is representation of language the luvian logograms are specifically anatolia uh, Anatolian hieroglyphics that were only designed to be written on monuments of stone uh, that basically said uh, uh, was giving us you know clues about a story that they were trying that they were telling in their time um, about what was happening there and I think these particular uh, symbols, represent in other words a logogram is, is one sign or symbol that represents one word and in a couple of these logograms as you as you go through the book um there's two in particular on a stone that when you put these two logogram symbols together it could imply that the meaning of this and luvian logograms could imply gate of the gods or house of the gods it could be interpreted both ways, but one specific logogram uh, can be interpreted as gate or or portal. Um, and so, uh, when I started piecing all this together, it 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 really blew my mind uh, because uh, there was really uh, no one that um, that was putting any of this together, and 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 it boggled me. Um, you know, why, if this was language, um, there are Luvian logogram scholars that know this language. Now, there's not a whole lot of them. It's a very, um, probably just a handful of scholars understand this. I've, I've been studying it now for two and a half years, and I've got several books on the Luvian language. Um, and so I, I make the claim in the book that this is Luvian language. And if it's Luvian language, Luvian logogram, Anatolian hieroglyphics, this is not 12,000 years old Stone Age. Back to the pre-pottery Neolithic A, according to their timeline. I, I don't think it's that old. If it's indeed Luvian logogram language, I think it's much younger than what we're being told. And and for you know, for the life of me, I don't, I don't know why more Luvian logogram linguists uh, haven't come out um, and you know voice their at least scholarly uh, opinion on on this because it, it's so clear to me when you look at the Luvian uh, the Luvian logograms that this is exactly what it is. It is language, and if that's true then it can't be 12,000 years old. And I make a, I make a case for all that. Yeah, it was a really great book. And uh, I ain't going to give away everything in the book. I, w- I want them to, to check this out. But it's uh, we just like the site itself with the discussion of this book, we've only scratched the surface. There's uh, 
there's Nephilim connections that go back lay. Uh, he goes into pre-flood knowledge to, you know, uh, Nimrod lenses, you know, Baghdad batteries, uh, all the other uh, ancient gods, how they tie in, you know, the seven wandering stars. It's just, there's so much there, and uh, you can definitely tell that you took your time and went through it. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on with us. Uh, I don't want to keep you much longer. Uh, but let everybody know uh, your website, where they can find your stuff, and uh, give, give everybody uh, what, uh, information where they can find you. Yeah, sure. Uh, this, this book has over 200 footnotes uh, alone, not including the bi- bibliography in the book. It's, it's heavily referenced. Um, I, I think you're... Uh, once you once you get through the book, you'll 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 have a solid understanding of Gobekli Tepe and and what they were doing there and why they were there. Um, but uh, I reference a lot of Dr. Heiser, Michael Heiser's uh, work in here, uh, also Derek Gilbert and his books, um, many other scholars, um, David Roll, Andrew Collins, um, and. Um, Many others, and, and one particular struck me nuts. I, it, um, I cannot remember his name, and it, and it, and it, and it bothers me because uh, uh, he's one of the, one of the key geologists that, uh, that's that's been out on the on the front lines of of this. Um, but uh, you can go to the uh, go to my website at aaronjudkins.com, aaronjudkins.com, and uh, you can find Guardians of Gobekli there. Um, and uh, I've got a couple of uh, editions out of soft cover. I got a hardback cover, and then I got a special limited edition uh, red linen cover with gold foil stamping on this on the spine. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, one of the the finer editions of the book that's come out. It, it'll be a limited edition copy, but all those are available. Plus the journals we talked about earlier for the quest for Noah's Ark, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, cave 12 and uh my Peru expedition we didn't talk about the elongated skulls uh, uh expedition i went on with la marzuli um but um all that and, and a lot more work including the film cumaran de petro which is available for free to watch on the website directly finding noah uh, all that all of the all my works linked up at aaronjudkins.com Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, hopefully we can uh, have you on again in the future, and uh, maybe we can get uh, you and Judd on here together. Uh, we got Judd coming up uh, next month to talk to us, but yeah, maybe we can get both of you guys in here, and we can dig in on some some subjects. I'd love to have both of you on. Yeah, absolutely, and thanks for having me on. There's there's so much more that we didn't even get a chance to talk about in in the book Guardians of Gobekli. Oh yeah, um, there, there's just it's. It goes like you said from from the Genesis six and, and the fallen angels and the in the concept of the Luvian language and and the images and um, you know just uh, the geology and all this uh, you're going to get a really good I think it's it's going to be very fascinating for people that's interested in in any biblical archaeology uh, historicity it's it's going to be one to uh, have as a good reference book uh, in your library. Oh yeah, like I said, I mean, once I started, I couldn't put it down. I just wanted to wet their whistle and get them to go buy you book. I don't want to give it all to them. I want them to go dig on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Robert Shock was the was the geologist. I was Doctor Robert Shock. 
Um, okay. and, uh, he's, uh, he's done a lot of work in this area and I've, um, I, I referenced Dr. Shock in the book too. Um, but, uh, he's, he's, I've never met him, but, um, he's one of the geologists that, that, uh, did a lot of work on the Sphinx in, in Egypt and, uh, kind of went against the, the mainstream, uh, theory on the Sphinx. And, and, uh, so he's, yeah, the head's he's too one small of the, for the body. What's that? I said the head on the Sphinx, it's too small for the body. I mean, it, uh, that's what I think. I think they recarved the thing. Well, he's he's definitely one of the ones who did a lot of work on the Sphinx, and and uh, so um, if you you know going back to the very beginning, if I can, that's one of the reasons uh, why they call me the Maverick archaeologist. I don't accept the the standard interpretation. Uh, if there's a question on um, on what what's being told to us, I want to investigate it for myself. I want to see the evidence. I want to basically come to my own conclusions and that's what science is it's questioning the status quo yeah that's and what we all I, should I do we should all do our own digging all do, form our own opinions because if not i mean you just believe what anybody tell you and that's that's basically why i wrote the book um you know I, i'm not trying to convince you of anything in, in this these are these are my theories I'm, I'm i'm really going out um really against the grain on on this uh on Gobekli Tepe. It is not a standard um, interpretation of the site. It is uh, really a 180. Yeah. And I think it is really uh, one of the first answers from a, a biblical perspective of Gobekli Tepe uh, for sure. But it definitely, um, it challenges the status quo. And, and that's, that's why they call me the Maverick archeologist. Well, Aaron, we really appreciate your time, brother. Guys, hope you enjoyed it. Go out, go buy the book, start digging. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at thedig423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at The Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. you got to dig.